Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Robert Larzelier. He is Professor and Research Methodologist in the College of Education and Human Sciences at Oklahoma State University. He investigates specific disciplinary processes that account for the effectiveness of authoritative parenting. He is interested in comparing the effectiveness of alternative disciplinary responses to misbehavior and searching for alternative tactics that are more effective than non-abusive spanking in situations where the latter has traditionally been used. So, Dr. Larzolier, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to everyone. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, okay. So, uh, first question. So, what kinds of parenting do we have? What kinds of parenting do we have? Mm -hmm. Your question. Well, there's a wide range of parenting, of course. And uh, Diana Bauman of University of California, who I worked with, uh, differentiated three different kinds, but that's only some of the major different types. She called them authoritarian, which is too strict, my way or the highway. The other extreme is permissive, whatever you want, dear. Not, not setting limits for children at all. And then she championed combining the best of both of those, which she called authoritative parenting, that emphasize uh, setting appropriate limits for children when necessary, but also having the positive parenting involvement that's emphasized by permissive parents. So it combines uh, the best of nurturance and the most appropriate way of setting and enforcing limits when necessary. Mm -hmm. And is it that any of these types of parenting produces better results than the others? I was astounded. I, she had a study that she followed preschoolers up through adulthood. So she started in the 1960s. And when I worked with her in doing it and analyzing it, I was astounded and how much more effective authoritative parenting was when you look 10 years later when they were teenagers compared to the extremes of overly strict and rejecting authoritarian parenting at the one extreme or overly lax permissive parenting at the other. Now there were other styles in between that were maybe not uh, at the very high end of, of nurturance on the one hand and firm control they may have been just average on one or both of those dimensions. Those children are doing nearly as well in the teenage years as the ideal authoritative parenting. It was the extremes that were not doing well 10 years later when they were adolescents. Right. Do we know if there are any individual differences in how different children respond to the different kinds of parenting? Well, that's a good point because most parenting theories come across as one size fits all, mm -hmm. but every child is different. So it's important to uh, different things are going to work with different children. So, uh, so it's always good parenting is always trying to get to understand your child and, and then try to give the best kind of parenting for that kind of child. So it's, let's see, what was I going to, I did a study on toddlers that showed that the mothers use different discipline tactics for different kinds of non-compliance. 
and mothers tend out to be smarter than parenting experts. <laughs> they often tend to use the, the, the response to a particular kind of non-compliance that's best on average for that kind of non-compliance. Right. So that means that uh, in your research and the research of your colleagues, do you take into account genetic factors or not? <clears throat> well, that's an important factor that often we don't take into account is, uh, is there are genetic factors. And so they're ge so genetically, different children have different temperaments. And a child with an easy temperament uh, it's, it's easier to love and, and not so difficult to set appropriate limits. And, and you can usually talk things through to a solution with them. But others with a more difficult temperament, they push the limits more and they need that love more than the easy temperament kid. But they're harder to love sometimes. And it's harder to set the right limits as opposed to going to one extreme or the other, with one extreme being just being overly punitive and the other extreme being just letting them do whatever they want so they learn to get their way with a bigger enough temper tantrum and then they try to get their way elsewhere in life by just throwing a bigger temp temper tantrum <laughs> in one way or another on the playground or with their boss when they grow up, et cetera, and that doesn't work too well. <laughs> yeah, I understand. Uh, and what is positive parenting? Now, what's your question about positive parenting? Yes. Uh, so you asked about positive parenting in general? Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I mean, I, I'm trying to ask you what it means, positive parenting. Well, of course, the more positive parents can be, the better. Now, there's a version of positive parenting that's that I disagree with. Some people say that parents should just be positive all the time and not use any negative disciplinary consequences whatsoever. Of course, not they would say not spanking, but also the extreme versions would say don't even use timeout or privilege removal. And I think that's totally unre unrealistic for most children. Now, it, when a child is cooperative or, or trying to negotiate, then that will work actually with, again, an easy temperament child. But uh, most children sometimes uh, aren't that amenable to reasonable cooperation. And so the vast majority of children need to combine that positive parenting with appropriate negative consequences when it's needed. And it's needed more for the difficult temperament child than the child with an easy temperament. Mm -hmm. And could you tell us more about authoritative parenting? Uh, how does it work? Very good question. Yeah, authoritative parenting in the textbooks, it's just summarized as saying that you have high nurturance, high parental involvement on the one hand, but combined with firm control. But in addition to that, <clears throat> well, first of all, I would say that each of those dimensions changes the other. So what I mean is on the one hand, you have you're, you're nurturing toward your child, but that doesn't mean they can do anything they want anytime. Um, and the firm control is done out of love. So that's going to keep it from being detrimental to a child. In addition to that, uh, authoritative parents, they have more give and take 
communication with their child than even permissive parents. Because authoritative parents don't just want children to cooperate. They want them to learn why they need to cooperate. And, uh, and, and they'll listen to the child and they'll make compromises and adjustments when that's warranted. But uh, they have the final word when they say, well, right now we need to quit talking about it because you have to get ready to go to school or you're going to miss the bus. <laughs> then, yeah. then they enforce that limited and appropriate way. And let's see, the other thing is, I think there are many issues of parenting where we're following our society's tendency to polarize issues to opposite extremes. One example is how much autonomy or independence should parents allow children to have at a young age. And she's, she emphasized, Diana Baumann emphasized that, yes, it is good to let children have some autonomy they, they need to express their independence, but they need to learn that they need to cooperate with people around them like their parents. Uh, so they have age appropriate autonomy, but that they, their autonomy grows with their responsibility in doing things like age appropriate chores for the family. And so, and that reminds, and one other thing that authoritative parents do that's important is they, as much as possible, they try to have a daily structure uh, a meal together as a family, a consistent bedtime, things like that. Right. Does authoritative parenting include spanking or any other form of physical punishment? Now, she started her research in the 1960s. So at that time, spank was pretty much accepted. And all, the, all her authoritative parents did use spanking, at least occasionally. They use spanking at about the same average as all the rest of the parents put together, but they never used it too severely. And it's severe physical punishment that's um, most detrimental in the rest of the research and in her research. Authoritarian parents are more likely to use physical punishment too severely. So uh, now another person's research indicated that was more recent, she found that Margie Gano at Calvin University, she found that authoritative parents were, um, that most, not all of them, but most of them use spanking sometimes, but they phased it out by an earlier age. They didn't keep spanking their child past, in her research, it was, they didn't keep spanking past age 11, which seems pretty old to me to stop spanking. But in any case, authoritative parents, most of them were likely to use spanking, but they phased it out uh, in the elementary school years and, and then uh, disciplined their children in alternate ways as they got older. Now, in her research, parents who did that, who used spanking sometimes, but phased it out by uh, age, she said 11, those children were doing better than the children who never spanked in her research study as a whole. So, uh, and, and that fits the best way. That's consistent with the only way of using spanking that's shown to be more effective than most other things that parents can use for discipline. And I can talk about that if you want me to. Sure, is spanking problematic? Well, it can be problematic. Any discipline tactic can be. And, so it depends on how it's used. 
And the, the way it's been shown to be more effective than other alternatives is the way that psychologists used to train parents to use spanking for oppositionally defiant children. So then they would they emphasize time out. So they would train parents along with positive things, be reward them, reinforce them, praise them when they're having good behavior. Along with that, they would feature having a consistent use of time out and following one warning when children were non-compliant. Now, these defiant kids whose parents brought them to the clinic, often they wouldn't stay on the timeout chair for the three minutes. So in the 60s, 70s, 80s, they backed it up with a two-swat open-handed spank to the rear end. And psychologists would train them, train parents to do that back then. Um, and that way of using spanking, that's been proven to be effective, especially with two to six-year-old children. If it's used non-abusively to back up milder discipline tactics like timeout, when the children are defiant and won't cooperate with that, then it is effective. The kids learn to cooperate with timeout, and then the parents don't use them, need, spank, need to use spanking anymore. And so then they can phase it out by ideally at an age younger than age 11. So uh, now, now if you go to psychology, the way that we train that today, the spank backup isn't used. The psychologist doesn't want to be known as, this is psychology teaches parents to spank in today's environment. But a recent research by out of Harvard published in John Weiss is his name in 2019, he asked, are our treatments for children improving or not? And the answer was no. He found that with these children with oppositional defiant disorder and other conduct problems, our treatments today are half as effective as they were 50 years ago when it was routine to use spanking to back up the cooperation with a timeout chair. Now, that may not explain the whole thing, but... Uh, that's the only, the major thing that's changed in these treatments since the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So that, but that's the other, other studies have shown that's the best way to use spanking. That again, to back up milder discipline tactics when children are defiant and won't cooperate with them, because you want children to, to cooperate with those milder tactics so you don't have to spank. Uh, as much you so that you can face out spanking as quickly as possible as they get older. So that's um, so if you spank that way, that's effective. If you use it too severely or as the main discipline tactic, we rely on that too much, then in that case, it's clearly detrimental to children. So it depends on how it's used. Mm -hmm. But nowadays, since it's uh, since spanking is considered something bad and in some places it's even banned and outlawed right. uh, for these more defiant children. Is it a problem that parents no longer have that uh, tactic, let's, let's say, at their disposal? I, I think it is, but it's for the more, the kids with a more difficult temperament. <clears throat> now, it would help if where spanking is banned or if parents just say, I don't want to use banking, it'd be helpful if they knew the only alternative that's as effective as banking 
to back up maldiscipline tactics. And there's one and only one discipline tactic that's been shown to be as effective as spanking at backing up timeout with these kids, uh, defiant kids with oppositional defiant disorder. And that is a brief room isolation. So the psychologist who studied this, um, he had a like a small walk-in closet with a, that was empty, safe, with a half-height door. And he found that when the child wouldn't cooperate at the timeout, that they would take the child to that room, force them to stay in there for one minute by keeping the door closed, then take them back to the timeout chair and say, now, will you please sit on the timeout chair for your three minutes or whatever. Um, and, and that was the only thing that's been demonstrated to be as effective for backing up timeout as the traditional spank backup. But then I don't know of anybody who's pushing spanking bans or saying not to spank that recommends that alternative. So there are other, there are other things, but they either aren't as proven or they aren't, uh, or they're proven to be less effective. There are things like you can assign extra chores or takeaway privileges and things like that if they won't sit on a timeout chair, but um, they, aren't, they aren't proven to be as effective at backing up maladjustment tactics like timeout uh, as the traditional spank was. Mm -hmm. and, I don't know if I that mean, fully answers your question or not. Mm -hmm. uh, but I mean, for these more defiant children for whom spanking perhaps would be uh, a good method of disciplining them, what are the bad outcomes associated with bad parenting in that case? Well, one way to ask your question is I've tried to look at the effect of spanking bans to see, well, how effective are they? Now, it turns out that in, in most countries with spanking bans, they have it on the books, but it's really not enforced or often not communicated to parents. And I don't know, I really don't know to what extent that's true from country to country. And more educated parents probably know that's the law of the land, whether it's vigorously enforced or not. Where it is enforced in, in Sweden, which has the best records I've seen, their criminal assaults by minors have, and against minors has increased like 20 times as much since they banned spanking back in 1979. So uh, in, in the first 15 years, as the first generation grew up after they were the first country to ban spanking, um, children were almost six times as likely to be physically abused by a family member at home before they were age seven. They were about six times more likely to, there were six times as many criminal assaults by minors against minors. And, and a child was more likely, was uh, 10 times more likely to be raped before the age of 15 uh, in Sweden during the first 15 years after they banned in the first generation that grew up under their spanking ban. So, um, so I'd like to see evidence that it worked, but I think part of it is <clears throat> when these spanking bans are adopted, if they're vigorously, vigorously enforced, like in Sweden, then uh, 
then I don't see them having, excuse me, <clears throat> I don't see them having good alternatives to back up something like timeout. Because um, they, they advocate just being positive all the time and that works fine for, for most children. But for the particularly defiant child, it doesn't work well enough. Mm -hmm. But do we know if zero tolerance for spanking uh, overall reduces physical child abuse? Or no? no, it does not. Uh, one example is uh, like in Sweden. Now these are out, these are alleged cases. They're in the criminal records. So they have st statistics on allegations. But in Sweden, the statistic is, uh, is the statistic is actually there is a criminal assault reported against the child indoors by someone known to the child that's under the age of seven. So that's the statistic that's increased uh, six times approximately during the first 15 years. And it continued to increase until by 2010. Uh, those things were being alleged uh, over 20 times as often as when they banned spanking in 1979. Now, an example of that is um, in Germany and in Austria. The best, one of the best comparisons I have seen of um, of parents in European countries who have banned spanking, those who haven't been, was by a German by the name of Busman. Uh, this was published, it was available online earlier, but it was published in a book in 2011, Kai Busman and, her co and his colleagues. Uh, at that time, only one third of parents in Germany and Austria were aware that mild spanking was banned even though it had been banned seven years at that time in Germany and 18 years in Austria. So that, so that enabled a nice comparison. You had about one third of the parents knew that mild spanking had been banned, it was illegal. So of course they were less likely to use it. But two thirds of the parents thought mild spanking was still legal. So they were more likely to use it. What's interesting is when you look at how how frequently were those parents to use severe physical punishment? And those who could use mild spanking were less likely to use severe physical punishment. Now, why? Well, I think when a parent's really getting frustrated with a child and it's a particularly difficult episode, an appropriate mild spanking is one way to bring it to a close for most kids. And, but when you take that away, then the parent gets more and more frustrated until they finally erupt and lash out uh, severely at a child in a way that a loving parent wouldn't want to do. So the uh, so I don't see any any evidence that spanking bans reduce. I thought it would reduce physical child abuse, but just like in this country, the United States, 100 years ago, we thought we could solve uh, alcohol abuse by making this a dry country. If we could just stop people taking the first drink, then we would, and maybe it did reduce that, but there, of course there were, the alcohol that was available then wasn't as good. So, <laughs> so there were negative side effects to that well-intentioned effort back then. And I, I think we need to learn how to do these banking bans more effectively 
because they don't seem to be working from the evidence I can see anyway. But in terms of the results you described after the spanking ban in Sweden, I mean, do, do we get the same results for other countries which also banned spanking? For example, in Europe, have you studied other countries and what happened after they banned spanking? Well, the best evidence I've seen is the is this study by Busman et al. Um, but as far as I can tell, the vast majority of countries who have passed some law to ban spanking, they don't really communicate it to their parents. They don't enforce it. So parents, most parents keep on doing what they do. If they are aware of it, maybe they reduce their spanking some, like in New Zealand, for example. Um, but like, I was surprised that even in Europe, that in 2007, slightly less than one third of the parents knew that mouth spanking had been banned, even though it had been banned for seven years by that time in Germany and 18 years in Austria. So, um, I mean, it's, it's an unknown, but, and I think certainly in African countries like Kenya that have banned spanking, uh, only the very educated know that's been done and they're still using spanking in many schools there, even though it's of course was banned in schools as well. So I think, I think for some of these third world countries, especially, the UN is trying to pressure countries to ban spanking. So these third world countries say, okay, get off my back, oh, we'll pass a law, then so you can give us what we're looking for. But then they say, okay, we satisfied those Europeans, now we'll go back to parenting the way we always have. But that that's my guess, you know, there's, I mean, I, I mean that I have some, that's based on some first people I know from Kenya and stuff like that. And I was surprised that in Germany and Austria, so few parents were aware of the full extent of the ban that long after they had banned spanking. Mm -hmm. So one last question then, because we're talking about parenting what are some of the negative outcomes associated with adopting a style of parenting that is not adequate for the child at hand? Let's say these more defiant children, for example. Well, the more defiant, more defiant children are harder. They need optimal parenting the most, but it's harder to give that to them. So that they're harder to to love, but they um, they need that love. They need this, especially whatever kind of negative disciplinary consequences parents use, whether it's spanking or something else. A critical factor is that at the end of the day, as the child grows up, if the child can say, well, yes, you punished me maybe with negative, maybe taking away privileges or spanking, whatever. If, if when they grow up, they say, well, yeah, I didn't like it at the time, but my Parents were doing that because they wanted the best for me, because they loved me, they were doing out of concern for me. And that's associated with positive outcomes. But if they feel like my parent was just uh, wanting to show who's the boss, who's, uh, they really, I, I was just a problem for them and they were, they were rejecting me, then if that's the way the child looks back on this kind of stuff, then that's gonna lead, be associated with negative outcomes. So. So for disciplining the uh, child with 
a more difficult temperament that's defiant, then you just, well, you want the right balance. You have to set some limits and keep away from being too severe with your punishment uh, and, but not give up and, and quit disciplining them because it's difficult. They need, they need to learn that they have to cooperate with people around them and the parents need to use, you talk to them as much as you can. You want to use positive parenting as much as possible, but those kind of kids need to have limits set and enforced uh, on a consistent, as consistently as possible. Mm -hmm. I understand. So before we go, Dr. Lars Zolier, would you like to tell people where they can find your work on the internet? Um, <clears throat> I have an edited book on authoritative parenting. That's a compilation of some of the best research in this area. And that's a scholarly book. So I think one, the most negative review on Amazon.com said, said uh, this, this one even, this was a good book to put you to sleep or something like that. Um, now, as far as practical things, uh, there is a presentation I made at University of Wisconsin in about 2001 that sort of summarizes uh, this, um, this important principle in authoritative parenting to use positive parenting as much as you can. Um, but to back it up first with a warning, then with something non-physical like timeout or privilege removal. But if a particularly defiant child won't cooperate, that then back it up with spanking or with this brief room isolation. So, um, so you can probably search Large Allaire, University of Wisconsin. It's in a book called Parent, Parenthood in America or Parenting in America in 2001. But I don't have much on, on the web, I guess. Yes, I, I will leave some links in the description box of the interview then. Dr. Lars Allaire, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Okay, thank you for having me, Ricardo. Hi guys, thank you for watching the interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing, please consider supporting the show. It's thanks to people like you that it keeps running. I will leave links in the description box to Patreon and PayPal. Any amount, even just $1 per month, would already be a great help. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share the interview, leave a like, and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Peruga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Ernst Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Glinkby, Matthew Whitting, Bordarno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Enrique Lania, Jean Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Colombo, Jorge Pinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Robert, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreff, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Dugny, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenk, Wal Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslin Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, 
Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Weira, Tom Hamill, David Sloan, Wilson, Yassila Des Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dermiti Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Rofia, Nick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostasevsky, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, João Linhares, Lida Cosmidi, Sam Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litzke, My Producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafini, Akion Gilligan, Luis Caetano, Tom Vanegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Miller, Vega Guidi, Sardes France and Thomas Trumbull, and my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codriano, and Bogdan Knivets. Thank you for all.